Jesus' name, amen. So um, as we look at the book of Psalms, this is the first Psalm, obviously, and this is a very important Psalm. It's put here for a reason. And all the other Psalms really should be read in light of this one. And the wisdom books of the Bible play a very important role in our Christian life. The Psalms is one of them. We have Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. These are all wisdom books. And part of the purpose of these wisdom books is to teach God's people how to live within the covenant that God has made for us. Now, in the Old Testament, God made a covenant with his people. The covenant he made with Moses and the people of God lived under that covenant. But now Jesus has established a new and better covenant. But these words that were written that taught people how to live under the old covenant, these are just as true for us today as they were for the children of Israel in the Old Testament. Well, um, all of us hate to waste anything, don't we? There's a story I heard recently about a man who wanted to honor his mother. He was, a, he was a very rich man, and his mother was having a birthday, and so he was searching online for something to get her, and he saw this exotic bird. It was a one-of-a-kind bird. It knew 4,000 words. It had a huge vocabulary, and it also knew several languages. And he thought that his mother would like that, and so he ordered it for her, and uh, the cost of the bird was $50,000. He did it. It arrived at her home. He thought he would give it a little bit of time. He called her the next day, wanted to wish her a happy birthday. And then he said to his mother, what did, what did you think of that bird I got you? And she said, thank you, son. It was delicious. <laughs> well, you know, all of us hate to waste anything. But there is, there is nothing more awful to waste than a life, than to waste a life. I had a friend in high school, he was one of my closest friends, his name was, was Jim, or we'll call him Jim, not his real name, and uh, Jim was a pastor's son in our church, uh, Jim was somebody who always went to youth group, Jim was somebody that I liked to hang out with and spend time with. And all of us find ourselves consumed at different times with different things, and he became consumed with money. I remember when we were in high school, when we were still students, I think he was a senior, he saved up his money, he worked all the time, and he bought himself a Cadillac Fleetwood Brougham. Now, for those of you who um, may not go back into the 1980s, you may not know what that is, but that was kind of like a really nice car. And uh, that's something that he wanted. It was a couple of years old, but he was able to buy it. Then he went off to college. He was in college, and he was a workaholic. And while he was a student in college, he bought his first Mercedes. And he bought lots of cars. He bought lots of possessions. He wore Rolex watches. And he loved to make money, and he loved to buy things, and he loved to look important. But he became obsessed with it. He became obsessed with making money so much so that it took him away from people that he knew, people that he loved, relationships that he knew, took him away from the Lord. And uh, even in the midst of this pursuit of possessions, it left him empty and he turned to alcohol during those days. And when he was in his, uh, when he was in his early 30s, uh, Jim took a trip to Dallas, Texas. He got drunk on the plane ride over, 
And when he got out at the airport, he went down one of the escalators. He was so drunk, he fell over the escalator. He landed in intensive care. And there he was in intensive care for quite some time. But he had cut himself off from everyone in his life to such a degree that when he was there in intensive care, no one came to see him, not even his mother, and there he died. And I think about Jim's life, and I think about the way that he lived. And as I look at everyone here, I don't, I, I don't want any one of you to live a life like that. In fact, this psalm tells us how we can avoid living a life like that. This psalm teaches us how we can live a life that really matters. You know, a lot of people, like Jim, thought that, that by pursuing money, that was pursuing the things that matters. That's what the world tells us. But he found out that that was empty. He found out that that was empty. In fact, when he died, the only thing that those people around him really cared about was who was going to get his money. That was, that was it. Can you imagine that, being somebody in your early 30s, no one in the world cares enough to even go see you when you're dying. Well, don't let that be you. Don't let that be your life. This scripture is a warning to us that, um, that we waste our lives if we don't live them for Christ. We waste our lives if we don't live our life for Christ. The first thing we notice is he calls us to turn our eyes upon Jesus, call our eyes, uh, turn our eyes upon the Lord. Everything that we notice in these verses is opposite to what we hear in the world, and we uh, are given this, this picture of what uh, a godly life looks like. First, by, we're given a negative example, then we're given a positive example, and then it's illustrated what a godly life looks like. But we read this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Now we notice here that it tells us what the, what the, what the man of God doesn't do. He doesn't allow his thinking, first of all, uh, he, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not allow his thinking to be taken captive by the world's thinking. The word here for wicked refers to um, someone who lives by their own creed, who lives, uh, most people think that they live by their own creed, but really they're living by the world's creed. And the first area that we find ourselves under attack particularly spiritually, is in the area of the mind. Think about when, um, when, when Adam and Eve sinned against God. The first area that, that Satan attacked was in their thinking, was in their understanding of Scripture. Did God really say? And then, and then Eve began to imagine a life different than the one that God had given her. You see... You see, sin begins in fantasy. Sin begins in the mind. We begin conceiving of a life that's different than the one that God has given us to live. And then we act on it. And we fall into sin. But we notice that the first thing that we notice about the godly person is that the godly person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. 
does not walk in the counsel of those who's, who walk by their own creed or by the world's creed. We have this picture of it in Malachi 3.18. It says this, it describes the, the wicked person. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. You see, this is somebody who walks by his, the beat of his own drummer and not by the design that God has built into the universe. The second thing that we notice here is that um, nor do they walk in the, in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor stand in the way of sinners. Now, this is kind of the second degree of departure from the Lord. One of the things that we know about the Christian life, I think there was a, there was a song about this, it's a slow fade. We can be at a certain point in our life where we're fired up about the Lord, but then as we find ourselves in maybe compromised situations, that fire turns into a little ember and then we become tempted by the world and slowly we start conforming to the world and slowly we drift away. He's warning us against this. It starts in the mind and then it plays out in the way that we live. He says, who does not stand in the way of sinners. Well, what is this word sinner uniquely used for in the Old Testament? (coughs) Well, a sinner is somebody who's against a given commandment or prohibition of God. And there should be alarm bells going off in our minds where when we begin to rationalize why it's okay to live in rebellion against God. When we step off of God's road and we now begin standing on the way of the road of the ungodly. We have a third thing here that we see nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, in the Old Testament, scoffers is a type of fool. And if you read through the book of Proverbs, it says all kinds of things about fools, but there's a specific kind of fool called the scoffer. And uh, Proverbs 21-24 gives us this great definition of it. It's nice when definitions of words are built into verses. It makes it easy. This is the New Living Translation. Mockers, it's the same word as scoffers. Mockers are proud and haughty. They act with boldness, with boundless arrogance. So the idea here is that the one who is the scoffer, the one who is the mocker, is the one who is mocking God and mocking the things of God. And what he's saying here is that if we are to live a meaningful life, if we are to live a godly life, We need to be careful of associating with those who are mockers because eventually we might become like them. And so we have this picture, this negative example of what the godly person is not like. The godly person does not not walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, and does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Can you see the, the, the progression there? from walking to standing to sitting? Have you ever experienced that in your life? When we start to go through that progression and we find ourselves wandering from the Lord, again, alarm bells should be going off in our head and we need to draw close to the Lord before we get to a place like that. In fact, we're given given a um, positive example of what the godly person does. We notice it in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
The, the person who, who's living a godly life is a person not who's, who's trying to sort of get close to the world and the world's thinking. No, he's, he's somebody who's taking up with God. He finds his, his, his delight in the Lord. We read an example of this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. This is speaking about a, a family and how parents ought to raise their kids. It says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You see, that's what the Christian is supposed to do. Not um, sort of standing in the advice of the, the wicked or, um, or, or walking in the advice of the wicked or standing in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of scoffers. No, we are to in our standing and our sitting and our lying, whatever it is, we are, we are to have our minds fixed on the things of God. We're to find our delight in Him. Now, some people hear this and they think about a life uh, of, of, of meditation on the Lord and they, they think that this sounds like a boring kind of life. But I want you to know that there's nothing more exciting in all the world than to have our minds fixed on Christ. When, when my siblings and I get together and we're able to talk about our upbringing, you know, the, the greatest memories we have is not the vacations we took, it isn't the things that we had, it isn't the houses that we lived in, it isn't uh, our different experiences together. The greatest thing about our upbringing, the best thing about our upbringing occurred when we would sit together as a family around our table and we began talking about the Bible and we talked about how Christ relates to every facet of life. Whether, whether one of the siblings went to work that day and, and had an experience and we would talk about it together. Or maybe we went off to school that day. I was the youngest and maybe there was something that my teacher said that was contrary to what, what, what God would have for us to believe. And there at the table we would discuss all of these things and we would debate all of these things. And, and our whole time was taking up with it. And, and then we begin to understand that every facet of life is related to Christ. You see, understanding what a relationship with Christ is helps us understand what it means to be related to everything else because he is the creator of all things. And because he is the creator of all things, he is related to all things. And that, that is a beautiful thing about thinking about him and his relationship to the world. When we, when we interact with another person and we interact with that person thinking, how would Christ have me interact with that person? Or we find ourselves in a situation in a moral conundrum and we ask the question, how would Christ have me deal with that situation? Literally every aspect of our lives can be taken up with Christ and there is no joyous thing than to see the fruit of that kind of life come forth in us. And this is this beautiful promise that he, he gives us. The, the godly, godly people are the happiest people on earth. Their delight is in the law of the Lord. You see my friend Jim, you know, he, he put his delight in, in material riches and you know where it led them? It led them to nowhere. Here we are, we're people, we're chasing after this. It's part of the American way. This is, we're, we're, we're infatuated with, with, with material wealth and, and all of these things, when in reality they just come back in diminishing returns. The more we chase after it, uh, the, the more we look for it, the, the, the next time we find it it, it, it isn't what we thought it would be. And so we keep chasing, keep chasing, keep chasing until we grind ourselves in the ground and we destroy ourselves 
God wants so much more for us than all of that. And so we see how they delight in God's law. It tells us in in, uh, verse 2, it gives us this picture, the godly meditate on God's law day and night. Now the word meditate comes from the the word to mutter. So so for instance, when... when, uh, when, when I used to work for my, my dad, he owned a printing company, and uh, he, there, he had a certain employee, his name was John, and John was really good at what he did, and I wasn't very good at it, but I w- he would work at one table, I'd work at another table, and what he did required him to make all kinds of calculations. So I would be at one table, he would be at another table, and you would hear John making kind of like this strange noise, like this animal noise, <laughs> and, and, I would, and I would say, uh, what, what, John? He said, I didn't say anything. And then he would go back to work. I would go back to work. And then a little bit later, I'd hear, and I'd say, what, John? And he would say, I didn't say anything. Stop calling me. Well, he didn't, he didn't realize that he was saying something, but he was. You see, he had all these calculations going in his mind, and he was thinking about them. And, and these calculations were then dribbling off in his lips, and he didn't realize it. That, that's a picture of what biblical meditation is. We think about uh, we've, we hear a lot in the news about Eastern meditation. Eastern meditation is the idea that you empty your mind. But biblical meditation is the idea that you fill your mind. We fill our minds with God's word to such an extent that sometimes we might find ourselves making all kinds of strange noises because we're, we're turning it over in our minds and now it's dribbling over in our lips. If you've ever watched, uh, uh, maybe gone on YouTube or you've been to Israel and you've gone to the Wailing Wall, you'll see that there will be people there at the Wailing Wall and they will be praying and they'll be mud- you'll, you'll hear a sound from their lips coming out of their lips. Well, that's what they're doing. They're practicing biblical meditation. They're filling their minds with scripture, and so it's coming out on their lips so that you can hear it. And this is the picture of the, of the, of the person who's going to experience a life in all of its fullness, experience the kind of life that God made us for. This person is somebody who meditates on God's word day and night. Well... He also tells us what, what uh, a godly person is like. He tells us what a godly person is like. In verse 3 it says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. And all he does, he prospers. Now we get the idea as we read this about um, in, in, the, in the Middle East you would have these 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 desert places, and, and the world is kind of like a, a desert place. Sin came into the world, and, and uh, the world was impacted by the curse. But by God's grace, he sent a Savior, Jesus Christ, so that all who believe in him will be rescued from the curse and will be ushered into eternal life. And so you have this picture of this godly person living in this oasis in the middle of a barren land. That can be your life in Christ. This barren landscape of this world that we live in, you can be like a tree planted by streams of water. Here, here's a picture of it. This is in Gedi. This is a place that David went. He hid from Saul. Saul was a king who was trying to kill David. And you can see here this barren land, this barren wasteland. But then you have all these trees growing up. Well, why were these trees growing in this particular spot in the middle of this barren land? Well, we see a next picture. And this next picture is in Gedi. David hid in a cave right back here. 
And, and you can see how there's a stream of water and you can see how there's lots of rich vegetation around it. So that even in a barren land, you have this beautiful picture of, of a, a, an oasis in the midst of it. And that's what our lives can be. Our lives can be an oasis in the midst of this barren world in which we live. Don't you want to experience that? Don't you want to drink from those waters? Don't you want to know that? Aren't you tired of living in the barren wasteland trying to find happiness in a dry place? You can't find it there. But you can find it in Christ. You can find all that you're looking for. And so we have this picture of the godly life. Turn our eyes toward Jesus. The second thing is, is we need to turn our eyes away from the world. Now we look at the final, the final emptiness of the wicked life. Um, our lives won't amount to anything if we desire to live for the world. We will be, as he describes here, like chaff that the wind drives away. Now this, this is kind of a rich imagery, rich picture. But what he's referring to is when they would bring in the harvest for wheat. When they would bring in the harvest for wheat, they would, they would bring in the crop, and then they would go to typically the top of a hill, and on top of the hill they would, put all, they would stack all of the, the wheat up, and then they would use different farming tools, and they would go in the wheat, they would throw the wheat up in the air, and then the wind would blow by and pick off the chaff, the, the husk of the wheat, and it would blow it off, and it would just disappear. And then the wheat itself, the valuable thing, would, would fall back down to the earth. Well, he compares the wicked to chaff. Is that what you want your life to be? To be like chaff? Oh, there's such a better way. Decided to look up the, um, since he compares the, the, the life in Christ to a tree, and he compares the, the life without Christ to chaff, I, I figured, well, why don't we look this up? Here is the, here's the oldest tree in the world. This is in California. It's called a Great Basin Bristlecone Pine. It's over 5,000 years old. Now, you can go online. You can look at what the oldest tree is. They'll tell you what the oldest tree is in Europe. They'll tell you what the oldest tree is in this place or that place. And, and then you can find the oldest tree in the world. Then I decided to do another, do another search and um, wanted to look for what is the oldest chaff in the world. You know that I could not find anything about the oldest chaff. I could find lots of things about tools that they used to remove the chaff, but I could not find anything about the oldest chaff. Why? Because nobody holds it, nobody keeps it, nobody takes care of it, nobody nobody uh, gives one thought about it. This is what it looks like. It's just blown away. It's forgotten. And so the question for us is, as we meditate on this psalm is, what kind of life do I want to live? And so he calls us to make a decision. What will it be? Will it be a life after God's own heart, or will we live for ourselves? Well, if we live for ourselves, we're... We're, we're looking forward to a life of chaff. We read in verses uh, 5 and 6 that there is no future without Christ. There's no good future 
I should say for us, without Christ. There is an eternal future for those with Christ, and there is an eternal future for those without Christ. Those who know Christ will spend eternity with him in heaven. Those who don't know him will be shut out from his presence forever and will live in a real place called hell. And so he wants us to come to grips with these realities. He says in verses 5 and 6, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows, that word is a relational word, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here's the reality. This life is a staging ground for the next one. For those of us who know Christ, this will be the most of hell we will ever know. For those of us who don't know Christ, this will be the most of heaven we will ever experience. And so, he's calling us to make a decision. What will it be? Will we follow Christ, who is our Redeemer? We cannot be saved by our own good works. We can't be saved by anything we do. We have one who came who is perfect. He came in the flesh. He died on the cross for our sin. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If we place our trust in him, he will rescue us from the curse of death. And he will usher us into eternal life with himself in which we will enjoy him forever and ever and ever. We will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Except that 5,000 year old tree will have nothing on us. In millions and billions of years we will be with him forever and ever and ever. We will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season whose leaf does not wither. Everything that we will do will prosper. Can you imagine what that is like? The world offers us nothing, no hope, but in Christ we have life and that life abundant. And so he calls us to make a decision, what will it be for us? And so, Jesus says, he gives us these words of warning in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, he says this, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So how is it that we're saved? Well, Jesus also tells us in Matthew 7, he says this in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You see, the way to life is the way of abundance, the way of joy. It's the way of a life that is not Wasted. I just want to um, just want to make a, a, a three applications. Three applications. Number one, a word to parents. Start talking to your kids about the Lord when they are young. One of the reasons why people think that Christianity is boring is because they don't realize that it relates to everything. 
that it affects everything, that it affects every decision, everything that we do. There's not a single thing in our lives that is not in some way shaped by our relationship with Jesus Christ if we know him. Bring those conversations to your kids when you talk about what we watch, what we listen to, what we do, what we spend our time together as a family, making our priorities. Make this a priority. Talk to your kids about this. This is critical. But it's important that we remember that it can't be contrived. One of the things that our kids are expert at do, experts at doing is, is um, reading us. They can see when we mean it and when they don't. They can see when we're authentic and when we're not. There's nothing more powerful than, than watching courtside and looking every day at a person who's living the authentic Christian life. And there's nothing that's a bigger turnoff than to see someone who pretends to be one way one day, but actually lives a wholly different life the next day. God calls us to be authentic in our pursuit of Christ, and it will come out in our lives, and our children will, will be interested in it because they will see it in our own lives as, the, as, as Lord willing, we're able to lead them to Jesus. Number two, we need to stop seeking the world's approval. We need to stop seeking the world's approval. The, the way of the world is going nowhere. True joy, true delight, true happiness, true blessedness, whatever we want to call it, isn't found there. The whole world is a train wreck, proving that point. But have you ever known a saint to walk with God all of their life and you see that person at the end of their life and they, they still have that, that glow of Christ about them? How you see something different in that person's life if they, they have cultivated Christ, the, the sweetness of their way of life, their, their heart for the Lord, it, it just draws you in. There's nothing like it in all the world. Doesn't mean the Christian life is an easy life, but the Christian life is the best life. C.S. Lewis uh, put it this way, you know, the world will think we've lost our minds, right? And we follow Christ. But C.S. Lewis puts it this way, when the world is running towards a cliff, he who is running in the opposite direction appears to have lost his mind. The world might think that we've lost our minds. The, the scoffers might say, what are you doing? But I tell you, the only sane person is the one who runs to Jesus as their only hope. For he is our only savior. And he is our only means to a life worth living. I hope you've experienced that. I hope you know him. And number three, it's never too late to leave the world's path and walk on the Lord's way. There's a parable of the, the Lord told of the, the, the labors in the vineyard. You might remember this story. There was an owner of a vineyard who went out early in the morning. He went to a marketplace. And six in the morning, he went and he hired some laborers. And he said, I'll pay you a denarius, which is a one day's labor. That was what you normally got paid if you work for me. And a normal day was 12 hours. So these guys agreed to do it. Then he went out at 9 a.m. and he went out at 12 a.m. and he went out at 3 a.m. and he kept going and finding people and bringing them into work. And then finally, at 5 p.m., he went out an hour before the workday was over. He found some guys who were standing in the marketplace who had not worked that day and he said, do you want to work in my field? And they said, sure. And so at the end of the day, he lined them up he, with the one who came at 5 p.m. first and he paid him a denarius. Well, when he paid him a denarius, that was the amount that he promised to the people who started at 6 a.m. They were starting to, you know, get excited. Well, if somebody only worked an hour gets a denarius, how much will we get who worked 12 hours? Well, then he goes down the line and they can see what's happening. 
They can see that everybody got paid a denarius, whether they came at five or three or noon or nine or six. And they began to say, well, that's not fair. How can people who came at the end of the day get paid the same amount as those who came at the beginning of the day? And his answer was simple. Well, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? They said, yeah. He said, isn't it my right as a landowner to be generous? See, that's how God is with us. It doesn't matter whether we come to him late. It doesn't matter whether we come to him early. What matters is whether we come. Have you come to him? Have you trusted him? Have you experienced the new life that's found in him? There is no life that is, that is worth living other than the life that he has given us. I think about the, the times where I have been to, to, to funerals. Recently I had a, at a funeral with a, with a veteran who who um, who served his country, he loved his family, but when it was time for him to die, you know, you, know what, uh, you know what everyone did? You know what, the night before the funeral, a fight broke out between the family. It was so bad that when we had the grade side service the next day, when the veterans showed up the next day, I've never seen this before in the, the, the dozens and dozens of graveside services that, that I've done for veterans, never seen this before. They refused to give the flag to any members of the family, and they placed it on the coffin. Why? Because all the family was concerned about was who was getting his stuff when he died. Is that what you're, you want your life to be? The only thing that, that will matter to people at the end is who's going to get your stuff? Or I think about the veteran that I did a graveside for that I didn't even know that they asked me to do. And I went there to the graveside and there was no one there. There was the funeral director who didn't know him. There was me who didn't know him. And it was in his will that a graveside service should happen. So it was me talking to the funeral director. At the end, they had the, they had the presentation of the flag. Guess who got the flag? I got the flag because they didn't know who else to give it to. You know, when we go through the course of our life, living for ourselves seems awfully good. But who among us wanted to get to the end of our life and, and then see that our life made no difference to anyone at all? So that the moment that, uh, that, our, that our, the day of our death comes, nobody cares. That's what the world offers. Chaff. Chaff. But God offers life. He offers eternal life. He offers you the opportunity to be in union with him and to experience what it is to be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Which life will be for you? Jesus went to a cross to purchase our redemption. All those who place their faith and trust in him will experience a transformation that only he can bring. He gives us a new heart. He washes away our sin. He puts his Holy Spirit in us. And the beauty is, is that he'll take all of our experiences, those things in our past where we feel like we have wasted our life, and he will redeem those experiences, and he will use them for his glory. And he will use them to impact and affect other people's lives. So that as a result of serving him, our lives will have meaning and value. And will find its ultimate significance. Do you want to know that kind of life? It's found in Jesus. Let's pray. Father.